Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 26, Mad Money. As all is fair in love and war, the idea of sabotaging an enemy's economy to weaken their ability to pay for said war is an old idea. And it must be a universal idea, as it has been attempted, sometimes successfully, to forge an opponent's currency to create doubt whether the banknote in one's hand is real or not. Thus, confidence in the currency sinks, the country's financial world is turned on its head, and if taken to its logical conclusion, the affected country finds itself back to a time of bartering, which is the only true way to ensure one gets a fair trade during a transaction. Again, history is replete with nations at arms against each other, dealing in this less-than-chivalrous way. As far back as 1470, as the Duke of Milan warred against the financial might of Venice, he had its currency counterfeited, hoping to use their very strength against them, then so doubt amongst the bankers. After all, it is much wiser to go after a wolf's legs than to deal with its teeth. Frederick the Great attempted the same thing against his adversaries. The British, no less, though they would find it beneath them during the Second World War, financially damaged the American colonies during their Revolutionary War. Equally, both sides were guilty of this passive-aggressive style of warfare during the U.S. Civil War. The same goes for each side of the Russian Civil War just after World War I. But is this economic warfare enough to determine a winner? History shows not. But it remains one of the intangibles in war, and each side is always looking for an advantage, especially if they are not winning at the moment of decision. Or perhaps, as in Nazi Germany's case, if the war did not end in the manner and time it was planned for. For example, it should have ended when Poland was defeated, because, to Hitler's thinking, why fight for a country that is already under the Nazi yoke? Then, it should have ended after the fall of France. After all, the army that Britain was counting on was not their own. They provided the navy. It was the vast French army that provided the hammer to their anvil. But, as we have seen, it did not end there, either. On September 18, 1939, just weeks into the start of another general European war, leaders of Nazi espionage and finance departments gathered at Wilhelmstrasse 61 to discuss the Reichbank printing millions of counterfeit British banknotes and then having them dumped on the rooftops of London by the Luftwaffe. The idea was that the British citizenry, tired of rationing, of going without, would gather up the money, use it to buy the necessaries of daily life, only to discover, too late, that it was fake. Hence, confidence in the British banknotes would disappear overnight. The British economy would come to a complete halt, and thus be unable to pay for their wartime economy. Now, there was, as we have seen, nothing original about this. The same idea would be floated across FDR and Churchill's desk soon enough. But it appealed to the, let's say, unorthodox ways of those who had risen through the ranks of the Nazi party. At the meeting in Berlin, Arthur Nieba, chief of the SS criminal police, was the man spelling out the details. 
He was also the German representative of the body eventually known as Interpol, the international crime-fighting cooperative that tracked down, ironically, counterfeiters and drug smugglers. Nieba said during his presentation that he wanted to use the police files of the German branch of Interpol to find the right kind of wrong people to pull this off. But Nieba would find out soon enough that his boss, Reinhard Heydrich, would be against this part of the plan. Heydrich did not want to risk losing Interpol over this because he needed access to other countries' files for a much more important cause to track down anti-Nazis and Jews who had escaped Germany, because his boss, Heinrich Himmler, overall head of the SS, or Schutzstaffel Defense Squadron, who reported to Hitler personally, wanted the hunting of escaped Jews to remain a priority. But Heinrich only said no to the use of police files. He said yes to everything else about the plan. But another no, well, a tentative no, came from Joseph Goebbels, Minister of Propaganda. By the way, he gets credit for making Ha Hitler a greeting among Nazi Party members. His fear was that Britain would repay, no pun intended, the Germans in kind if this operation was found out, which would wreck the Nazi financial system, which was precarious enough, as Hitler would not allow the raising of taxes until after the war proper started which it just had, thanks to Britain and France's stubbornness. Amazingly, by November 21st of that year, just two months after the Berlin meeting, those that mattered in London were given a detailed report of the Nazis' possible counterfeiting intentions. In short, the German plan was to print billions in forged notes and, at first, subtly make as much profit as possible, but when that was no longer the case... Then, for the German Ministry of Propaganda to announce that London itself had printed forged banknotes all on their own, because the empire was, in reality, bankrupt, in trying to keep up with the power and might of Nazi Germany, the new ruler of Europe. Then, if at all possible, and if needed, for the German military to deliver the coup de grace to the British home island since its financial system would then be unable to pay for war materials needed to defend the country. A quirky thing of beauty. Well, on paper. By February 1940, the British told an American career diplomat, who told the State Department, who then told the Treasury. And collectively, they all hoped the American dollar was going to be left out of this. One, America was not in the war, and overall, did not want to be. Two, the country was doing all it could to deal with what would become known as the Great Depression. The last thing the dollar needed was to have its confidence shaken to the core. Going back a bit, intertwined in this tale is the geography of Germany itself. Hitler could have autobahns built and financially subsidized German industries to help prepare for war all he wanted. These things alone would not keep enough Germans working. Besides, war production needs raw materials, and that was Germany's greatest weakness. So, on November 5, 1937, Hitler gathered his military chiefs and put to them the following. Germany needs Lebensraum, or living space. As of now, there were too many Germans and not enough land, 
Land with enough of, and the right kind of, raw materials. It was up to the military to answer this call. But this plan was shattered when, after bending over backwards to appease the dictator, the Allies declared war on Nazi Germany when it invaded Poland to get access to all that rich farmland, of which the Jews and the Slavs did not deserve. But as war was now the new reality, and Nazi Germany had been preparing for years, in rapid succession, Norway, Denmark, the Low Countries, and France fell to the Wehrmacht. But then, then, Britain didn't follow the game plan and negotiate a peaceful but obviously German advantageous truce, which would mean a probable protracted war, and that was with the USSR, Hitler's next target in mind, still looming. And war, even when winning, costs money. Already used up was the three billion Reichmarks worth taken from the persecuted German Jews, as well as another six billion from the Jews of conquered nation states, and the gold reserves of the fallen countries. But as Germany and Britain would be going at each other, more money was needed, and clearly London, the world's financial center, had the advantage there. Hence, the meeting just held as the war had started, that may or may not have had Hitler's blessing, would be given the green light from on high, as Berlin and London were readying to go the distance. Reinhard Heydrich was the perfect man to move forward on the counterfeiting scheme. He loved spy novels, was fascinated by that peculiar world, and had dabbled in forgery in the past. Back in 1937, Heydrich heard that certain Russian generals, themselves heroes of the Russian Civil War, were planning against Stalin, hoping to cause chaos on a massive scale with a potential enemy. Heydrich had documents implementing Marshal Mikhail Tukhachevsky as turning against his premier, forged. But all this had been a Russian ruse from the start. Those masters of counterintelligence had planned the whole thing out beforehand. The Russian marshal had already been marked for death, but Stalin decided he may yet be of use before being shot. So Heydrich, falling for this ploy, was paid three million rubles for his documents he thought they believed were real. But as the money was marked, when some of it went to the Russian spies, who helped the Germans, they were all soon gathered up. The rubles, of course, were fake. But Heydrich believed, despite the truth when it came out a few years later, that he had been a major part of Stalin's purge of Russian military leaders. But so did many others within Germany which in part explains his notoriety among the Nazis and his being given the lead on this important project. But the day-to-day -day running of this counterfeit operation, working under Heydrich, would be Alfred Najox, the same SS major who started the war between Germany and Poland on his own at a German radio station along the German-Polish border, which, of course, set off World War II. Najox was Heydrich's go-to person. He ran the security services technical section, which was responsible for a SS-run brothel known as Salon Kitty, frequented by diplomats. The ladies employed there were multilingual and encouraged their customers, besides other things, to talk about their work. All conversations were recorded, of course. Moreover, the John's passports and other papers were taken away while they were 
preoccupied for copying or attempted duplication. But as Najox did not have the technical skills to pull off such an endeavor, that was left for Arthur Neba, who spoke of the plan at the meeting on September 18th. But Neba was replaced by Dr. Albert Langer after Neba became frustrated over limitations put on him. Having learned a lesson, Najox worked hard to cut through the interdepartmental fighting and reminded everyone or anyone who put an obstacle in his way that Hitler had given the okay for this assignment. Of course, he did not have anything in writing from Diffier, as that was not his way. Though Langer was much closer to possessing the knowledge needed to forge banknotes, he still had to brush up at home without Najak's knowledge. First, there was understanding the serial numbers that would make his notes appear authentic. When that came under his understanding, it was time to move on to figuring out the makeup of the paper the British banknotes were composed of. Taking a few five- and ten-pound notes from a nearby bank that was left for Najax to obtain, Langer and his draftsmen cut the money up and smashed it to break it down to its constituent parts. Having some trouble here, Langer discovered that many people who worked in banks and dealt with British currency had developed the talent of crumbling the genuine article close to their ear, the unique paper making a distinctive sound. This took a while to solve, but in the end, Langer used blind people to help practice getting the paper just right, going by its unique sound. One more hurdle was cleared. Next, Langer had to deal with the color of their paper. The British banknotes, Langer discovered, had been made since 1725 solely at the Portal Family Factory in Laverstoke in Hampshire. During their process, the paper turned out a color near violet or lilac. His paper was closer to pink. Through trial and error, he figured out that he had to alter his water to make it similar to the Portal water. With the addition and combination of certain chemicals, this problem as well was overcome. So far, the problems had been challenging, but overcome with patience and perseverance. His next set of challenges, the semi-blurry watermark on the British note and the Britannia seal in the upper left-hand corner, required Langer to bring in experts in their relative fields. Of course, the men had no choice but to offer their services to the Reich and knew better than to talk openly of their new occupations. Now that all the ingredients were in one place, it was time to give this endeavor a name, which was Operation Andreas, otherwise known as Operation Andrew. The name came from the X-shaped cross of Scotland's St. Andrew on the British flag, the two other symbols, the cross of England St. George and the third cross of Ireland St. Patrick, were ignored by the Germans. And now that the forged banknotes were as good as Langer could make them, it was time for a test. Around January 1941, though the details are vague and some of it's probably apocryphal, a loyal German soldier was sent as a civilian to Zurich with some of Langer's notes mixed in with the real thing. Then, the Nazis informed the Swiss that the young man's passport was probably a fake. As the young man crossed the border, he was seized, his effects taken from him, thoroughly examined, but the fake notes passed muster. So, all well and good for the object of Operation Andreas, but the team itself that begot these quality forgeries was falling apart. 
Heydrich and Najax had a very intense relationship, and by late 1940, Heydrich had rid himself of these self-serving, flamboyant Najax. But then it was Heydrich's turn. Assuming he was being promoted for his hard work and loyalty, Heydrich was made Reich Protector of Bohemia and Moravia, the western half of Czechoslovakia. His job was to make the people there productive in any way he could. Soon after his arrival, he was dubbed the Butcher of Prague, but in the end, he became a victim as well. The Czech government in exile, now based in London, sent in two agents by parachute who assassinated Heydrich in May of 1942. Score one for the good guys. However, the Nazis were playing for keeps. In response, the population of Lindis was slaughtered outright, the town razed to the ground. Dr. Lange himself would leave Operation Andreas in 1942 due to health problems, but according to his calculations, before he left, they had produced about three million pounds in five and ten pound notes. And his leaving was bittersweet. Having worked so hard on the project, Langer wrote that they could have made so much more. But in typical Nazi party fashion, he had had to deal with so many bosses, pulling him in so many different directions. At one point, he found himself ordered to produce counterfeit rubles after Germany invaded the USSR, that the work suffered due to regular interruptions. Furthermore, those self-important men in the SS uniforms, besides bossing everyone around, having no clue as to the complexity of the operation and its dangers, regularly took some of the forged notes for themselves to improve their lifestyle in this Germany of rations. So, for some time before Langer departed in early 1942, he found himself simply showing up for work and going through the motions. It wasn't until July of 42 that Himmler himself took up the cause but there would be no more loose lips and sticky fingers. Besides the meeting that more or less launched Operation Andreas at the opening of the war, there was also, within that same week, a letter from the First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir John Simon, stating he had heard rumblings about an idea to forge German marks and drop them or otherwise smuggle them into Germany to cause financial havoc. He wanted the Chancellor's thoughts on this. Just weeks later, on October 4th, the First Lord received a reply. Quote, My dear Winston, I am bound to say that on the balance, I think the no's have it. Unquote. In short, he did not think much of this plan and advised Winston to view it the same way. Another British official wrote when the idea from another source was brought to him, quote, ingenious, but not British, unquote. Perhaps not, but this kind of trick was right up the Nazis' alley, and this time Himmler himself would make sure the operation succeeded. On May 8, 1942, Bernhard Kruger, an SS officer, was ordered to report to the office of Walter Schillenberg, the chief of SS foreign intelligence. Kruger might have been with the SS, but with all the intense interdepartmental squabbling and outright sabotage, and even within most departments, his status as an SS officer did not mean he was untouchable to certain people. 
But Schulenberg didn't have time to make Kruger feel secure. He had a message to convey, and this message came from Himmler, their overlord. Quote, this order directs that the necessary measures be taken immediately for the fabrication of the English pound notes. Production must begin in the shortest possible time. To this end, the Reichsfuhrer SS has ordered a secret printing press to be set up in KZ, or concentration camp, Sachsenhausen. The workforce is to be taken from the reservoir of prisoners of Jewish descent. Unquote. Himmler, already having done his homework, had discovered that some of the reasons Operation Andreas failed was because that not only was everyone in an SS uniform out for themselves, even though their belt buckles said, My honor is my loyalty, but were bragging about their work to friends and girlfriends. Which meant that not only was forged currency circulating around Berlin, but may have already ended up in the hands of British spies. But now, with his own hands, Himmler had constructed the framework that would allow the forgeries to have their best chance of succeeding. This time, there would be one chief, Bernhard Kruger of the SS. All guards within the enclosed camp were answerable to him. What's more, the prisoners would be motivated to work hard and earnestly, the details be left Kruger, because bad results would mean their death. Of course, they would all be killed after it was over anyway, but again, that was only to the good. Not only could they not tell anyone outside the camp, but with their deaths, their knowledge would disappear. And if they happened to steal a few banknotes, what would it matter? They couldn't bribe the guards. They would know it was all fake. In short, this was as foolproof as any massive crime could be. Getting back to Kruger, he was shocked by his new assignment. Him? Why him? His mind tried to work through the possible benefits of a successful mission, but also what would happen to him if he failed. Well, that one was easy to work out. After all, Himmler himself was overseeing the operation and was known for his lack of patience and ruthlessness. But again, Schellenberg did not have time for the SS captain in front of him to get his bearings. His neck, in a roundabout way, was also on the line. So the SS chief of foreign intelligence continued without pausing. He then told Kruger that the camp had already been told that the captain would be there tomorrow. Kruger's face couldn't help but show his elation and his anxiety, his hopes for what this could mean, but also his fears of what failure would mean. And seeing these thoughts and emotions play across the captain's face, Schellenberg did slow down for a moment and, in a tone of encouragement, told Kruger that he was selected because he had experience in forging documents, which was true enough, but that was with foreign passports an altogether different world. And true, he might have been trained as an engineer and worked with machine tools, but he wouldn't be doing the work. He would be in charge. This called for the talents of a leader, a motivator, and the people he would be working with were either SS guards, not known for extracting high-quality work via fair treatment from Jewish prisoners, and the prisoners themselves, who all believed or knew their lives were already over. It was only a matter of when. 
How to keep the workers working efficiently and professionally, while at the same time having his guards oversee their work without the normal, brutal treatment they all seemed to enjoy administering. Kruger knew right then and there he would have to put down the stick and focus on the carrot. That was the only way this was going to work. Schellenberg misread Kruger's thinking his way through this thorny problem for consternation. So Schellenberg tried again. Quote, Kruger, seize this task with both hands. It will demand everything you have. You have my full confidence. Unquote. And then came the icing on the cake. Kruger was told that the operation would be called Operation Bernhard, Kruger's first name. In the world of Nazi Germany, where only power mattered, having an important undertaking named after you was indeed a compliment. But also, as Kruger must have been thinking, if it all went to hell, his superiors would know exactly who to blame. Putting away his thoughts for later, Kruger replied in the way he was expected. Quote, Brigade of you, you have presented me with a very difficult task, which I cannot reject. It is an order behind which stands the Reichsführer SS himself, unquote. And then, as if deciding it was all or nothing, he added, quote, Please allow me, Brigade of you, to ask for complete freedom in all technical organizational matters. You know that many cooks spoil the broth. Since I am to be held responsible for the operation of this project, I need a clear answer to this, unquote. The reply, in which not only entrapped Kruger further, but also freed Schellenberg to a greater degree, as there were microphones within the wall, the lamps, the chairs, the desk, was, quote, Kruger, all decisions are in your hands alone, no one else's, unquote. And just like that, Bernhard Kruger was given an assignment that, if successful, could mean victory for Germany and a career path for him that was beyond his imagination. On the other hand, if he was not successful, it could also mean a pistol being placed at the back of his neck as the trigger was squeezed. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. So, if you want to hear a funny story, stick around. Good. I'm glad you did. So, as some of you may know or have heard in the news, the South received a big snowstorm. And when we say the South in the United States, we're talking about the Southeast. One of the legacies of our Civil War. So, for the last three days, I've been shoveling snow as much as I can. We eventually got 15 inches, which is totally out of character for us. So, for the last three days, I've been shoveling um, pretty sore. But today, I knew I had to finish it off because I have to go to work tomorrow. So, I'm out there for about an hour, working out as best I can. But now, the snow has semi-melted and refrozen. So, on the bottom and the top, there are layers of ice in between, you know, a good 12 inches of snow. So, I have to throw away the regular shovel and get out this metal one. And I'm just literally hacking at ice. I'm not shoveling anything. I'm just breaking up ice. I'll get to it later. So I'm out there for about an hour, and I, and I have a very long driveway. It's about 75 yards long. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, but anyway, so I'm out there for an hour, and I'm hacking away, and I'm totally exhausted, and I sit down on the porch, and I'm just totally drained. I've been doing this for three days, and this just finished me off. So I'm sitting there on the porch, and the wife, who is the greatest thing in the world, walks out. She hands me a cigar and a book that I've been reading. And so I sit there, and I rest, and I light up a cigar, and she decides to go out there because she's um, she's a tough she's a tough lady. And she goes out there, and she starts pushing away or shoveling or throwing away the big chunks of ice that are broken up. And then my, our two little 
our two daughters go out there. Uh, and you know, kids, they can turn anything into a game. So they go out there and they start picking up these chunks of ice and throwing them. Then they start making it into a, a big ice fort and I'll put a fi- picture on Facebook. So anyways, so they're out there working and they're clearing it all up and I'm sitting there smoking a cigar and reading, reading. And then this car tries to pull into my driveway and I'm thinking it's one of those Omaha steak salesmen with an incredibly bad sense of timing. Those are the only strangers we get around here. But no, it's the uh, local priest who happens to live nearby. So he pulls up as, as far as he can, gets out of his car, walks up, and very just a wonderful man walks up and goes, So I just wanted to see if you guys are... And he looks at my wife, and he looks on me, and uh, looks at me, looks back at my wife, me, the kids, me. Uh, if you're okay, just if you had your power and you needed anything, we're like, no, we're good, we're good. So here I am. Smoking a cigar, reading a book. My wife's down there clearing the driveway, and it just looks so bad. I, I, so I threw down the book, but I didn't throw down the cigar because you don't do that. And I ran down. It's like, no, 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 Father, Father, you don't understand. I, 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 I was working on this, and I'm just taking a break. And he's like, no, I understand. You know, teamwork and all this stuff. And you got your little kids out here. It's a, a family thing. And I was like, no, 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 I'm terribly sorry. So he goes, well, if y'all are okay, I'll... See you later. But he just cuts me a look as he's getting into his car. And this is like this sweet priest. He's probably like 68 years old. And he drives away. And I'm thinking that, um, well, when he does his prayer list tonight, either he's going to probably ask for me getting a couple decades or centuries of purgatory to think about what I've done. Or maybe maybe I'll just be left off his prayer list for a while. And, and uh, that'll teach me a lesson. We'll see what happens. So be careful out there, people. Perception is everything. But um, this, in case something does happen to me, because he didn't pray for me, this is my version of what happened. And it was a total misunderstanding. And I'll put a picture of their, their fort um, that they built with the blocks that I made, the ice blocks that I made on Facebook, if you want to see it. It's a History of World War II podcast. So, um Try to get credit for when you can and and I, I you know, and always look busy because you never know who's going to pull up in your driveway. Take care, everyone.